Hello, 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 my fact friends and fiends. Welcome to yet another episode of Let's Talk About the Facts. You signed up for this. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fury, and with me today is a friend of mine who is the only friend I could even consider having this conversation with, Matthew Robinson. Hello. Thanks for having me again. Um, I would be remiss to not have you for this one. I'm excited, especially since you just hyped it up that like you're the one. I was the only one who could do this. So. Yeah. I haven't told him yet what it is, <laughs> but from many conversations that we've had in life as people, we have to... So today we're doing both a history and a mystery because mm. we cannot discuss the mystery without the history. Ooh. But also, one of those old time questions that we have all asked ourselves, or at least a variation of it. <laughs> Where the hell is Jimmy Hoffa? Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? Yes. <laughs> but as younger people, we have a bigger question to ask ourselves. Who is Jimmy Hoffa? <laughs> okay. And then why is this a two-part episode? Because holy crap, there is so much information. And when I got into it, I really had that moment of I know nothing and I really need to keep looking up things and contextualizing it for myself moments. Oh my God. I'm so excited. (laughs) And trust me when I say, we've had this conversation. (laughs) I feel like an idiot because I didn't realize how many things happened at the same time. So here I am doing all of that for you in a conversation with one of my friends who probably could have schooled me on some information, but it's time for me to school him. Oh, I'm excited. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to take this incredibly dense material and try to sum it up as best as we can in two episodes while still giving you major context in between, right? But of course... Why did I even begin this trek in the first place? That is a really good question because this guy, he went missing a while ago, right? And that reason that I even know who he is is because I've seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) And there's that moment where they ask Bob Hoskins' character to pop the trunk. And he says something to the effect of, what do you think I got in there? Jimmy Hoffa? And it's either Bob Hoskins' legendary timing. We can all agree it was. Mm -hmm. Or there's just something funny about the situation. And prior to researching this episode, I didn't really know who he was. But I still laughed. There's even a Golden Girls gag about him and Judge Crater. And I laughed at that. Still, I had no idea who he was. But it was hilarious to me. And again, was it just B. Arthur's impeccable timing? Or was there something to the joke? Amy Mann did write a song, Jimmy Hoffa Jokes, and rather than read you all the lyrics terribly, (laughs) hot take, go listen to her sing it, because she's probably going to do it better than me. But there's something to that that spoke to me in the opposite manner. Should I be laughing? So, in this first episode, I'm going to hit you with a roller coaster biography, because the first question you need to know is, who is Jimmy Hoffa? Da-da-da. So we're going to start where all the best things start, at the end. We're going to throw the baby and the bathwater and possibly the bathtub out while we're at it. (laughs) Because if you know the end, will you stick around for the story? Because I think so. Jimmy Hoffa was seen getting into a car, and the car was seen driving away, and neither are seen ever again. 
So many people I've spoken to know Jimmy Hoffa for having gone missing, but that's not what he should be famous for. Mm-hmm. So we're going to scroll back to the beginning now. James Jimmy Riddle Hoffa was an American... Youth- wait, wait, wait. Was his middle name really Riddle? It was Riddle. Like Tom Riddle? Like, like what? Like what kind of... So he became an enigma and his middle name is Riddle. I know. Do you think that's where the the meaning of the word Riddle came from? I I would believe it at this point <laughs> because it's like a Batman villain like moment. I know. <laughs> I know. But Who I, wouldn't miss it. His name's uh, his name is Jimmy Riddle. Okay. Oh damn. <laughs> Unfortunately, that just was his name. James Riddle Hoffa. But we know this guy is Jimmy. And you know what? You got to give it to him. He stuck to that name. Yeah. He stuck to that name. And you know what? Proud of him. But he was an American union activist, labor union leader, and served the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, also known as IBT, from 1957 until 1971. So rolling back to his beginning, February 14th, 1913, That is quite the birthday. Mm -hmm. Valentine's Day! Mm -hmm. James Hoffa was born in Brazil, Indiana. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, you know, as Americans, though, we can never name things for ourselves. We just have to yoink names from everywhere else. As someone who used to live in Wyoming, Ohio, I I understand how confusing that is. And we have to mispronounce it. Like I've said before, it's El Dorado, Arkansas, and Lafayette County. It hurts me. So welcome to coal mining towns in southern Indiana. The rough and tumble type and certainly filled with bootleggers in addition to the general population. We know how that kind of lifestyle can be. Honestly, it's a real delicacy. You know, coal mining. That's just the easy life. That wasn't hard on anybody. Oh, no, no one died. A real breeze. Oh, yeah. Especially on those lungs. Mm. <laughs> the black lung. <laughs> Reminds me of Zoolander, right? Two camel packs a day in that place. Oh, man. <laughs> and don't forget what happened in those 19-teens. Oh, yes. World War One, Or as they'd have referred to it at the time, the Great War. Mm, never no- another one like it. <laughs> <laughs> Who could have possibly imagined there would be another right around the corner? If they'd had an apocalypse bingo card around that time, holy hell. Good gracious. <laughs> I know, right? I feel like if anyone... Had an apocalypse bingo around the time that we had an apocalypse bingo. It, yeah, I mean, why does that just line up? Is it every hundred years or something? I mean, they had they also had to deal with the flu around this time. So this is, I mean, this is a great time to be an American, huh? Every hundred years, we just have to go through trauma. <laughs> or is it all the time? Mm. Moving on. Do you want to know what else will put this in historical context for you? What's also in the living memory of the time that Jimmy Hoffa was born? The American Civil War had only concluded 48 years prior. That is, or eight. Many white people had, quote, fled, if you will, to southern Indiana, where our young Hoffa was raised. Now, that's going to sit there in your mind, because to give you the alarming context of what was 48 years ago today, 1974. Oh my gosh. Major events, Watergate. The Terracotta Warriors were discovered. The Great Plains tornado outbreaks. But okay, okay, 48 years before the origin of us, right? We're roughly the same age. Yes. So we're going to call it 1943. 
So that deeply affected the adults in our lives. This would be the year that the slinky and silly putty were invented. And honestly, that's groundbreaking. But did anything else happen? Oh, yes. That second world war. America did have a lot of shit happen. But, you know, it's World War Two, right? Right. Mm. Yeah, we had a lot of shit happen. The Warsaw Jewish ghetto uprising happened, which is considered the single largest revolt led by the Jewish people in World War II. If you don't know about it, the internet is free and please read about it. That's not what this particular episode is about, but we should have learned about it in school. Thank you, American educational system, (laughs) because I can safely say not everyone did. I didn't. I learned about it on the internet. Yes, and please look it up at a reputable source. Don't use 4chan to yeah. find out about anything to deal with the Holocaust. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. So I think we can safely say the people around us have a lot of what we call unprocessed trauma, generational trauma, and the people who are around them, not just the family, are going to be living memorials of that. Mm. So back to Mr. Hoffa, where he grew up, was now a center of the domestic terror cell, the KKK, and clearly any answer to a conflict would be violence. Mm. So that would be what his formative years were, around those single-digit years. It also meant routing out neighbors and hierarchies within the group. I've never heard of an instance of this particular type of domestic terror cell to not enact or instill in the communities that it infects, and yes, it is an infection, where there is not a classist oligarchy, Mm. where it also becomes some sort of unwavering caste system with the false hope that if you only pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can make it in life. Which, by the way, that's a paradox. (laughs) If you do read the full quote found in a late 1800 school book, why cannot a man lift himself up By pulling on his own bootstraps, the answer is, he can't. If you own a pair of boots, check the back and pull on that tab and see if you can lift yourself into the air by it. Guess what? You can't. Mm. If you have the cowboy or riding style of boots, those two side tabs that you pull on to put them on, can you lift yourself off the ground by pulling on those? Can you defy the gravity that we know to be true and come up off the ground? Absolutely not. Your own weight is still there, but that does not stop 20th century and beyond economists and politicians from co-opting that phrase for upper mobility. Again, what does this have to do with Jimmy Hoffa? Well, if you know who he is going to become, knowing where he did come from always informs as to his many motivations and core beliefs. Mm. So we're going to head back to that coal mining town where it's said to have more saloons than churches, (laughs) which, you know, that cracked me up because when (laughs) at first I thought they meant churches chicken (laughs) and then don't ask, don't ask me why. Like I was like, that's a stat. (laughs) I realized it was Christian churches who possibly also provided chicken. But then I thought back back to college, and there were six churches alone in the two-mile stretch from my apartment to campus. (laughs) And I'm like, how? Well, you know, they all have to to break in 
they're different denominations. You know, oh, there's God. that famous photo of like the three churches that are all built the same, but one's like Methodist, one's Presbyterian. <laughs> you know, it's like a suburban church. It's like it's like what is going on here? It's like I don't know. As someone who's uh, considers himself non-denominational Christian. Trust me, I'm not someone who's like a stickler for the rules of Christianity. I'm like, it's like, you know, it's not to get religious or dogmatic, but I think it's funny that literally the entire New Testament is like, hey, dogma is bad and stop separating yourself into these denominations. And the first thing that Christians are doing, like, let's make a bunch of more rules and put ourselves in denominations. It's it's funny. It's Fun. You know what? We're going to have to do a whole episode on that. <laughs> but back to this hop, which is, you know, Church's Chicken. By the way, if your town has more Church's Chicken than anything, something is wrong. <laughs> so, and back to the story. <laughs> Jimmy mostly grew up in a single-parent household headed by his mother. She took in laundry from people in town to work f- to support the family. Clearly, he did not get to be part of the, for lack of a better way to phrase it, the cool kids in town. He grew (laughs) up poor. And those towns and people, oh, they never, ever let you forget where you came from. That's still true today. Yes. In 1924, the Hoffas moved to Detroit to find a better life. A city does have more, especially in that time. Jimmy Hoffa is now 11 years old. Detroit in the 1920s is not what we think of today. It was one of the megacities, just exploding with opportunity. And then again, with that came, at least in America, organized crime. Well, it came with crime. Then someone said, let's organize this. And therefore, <laughs> crime was organized. And that's opportunity. The difference between crime and organized crime is an Excel spreadsheet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. All right. So we know what happens after the 1920s, right? Oh, man. The li- liquor becomes illegal. That Yeah. Well, now, actually, Prohibition ended around 1931. Right. Right. But um, I think it's 1929. This other event hits. Um, it's called oh. the Great Depression. That whole thing. That, that thing, which it feels like we're going through right now, it just feels like nobody can say for sure. There's no hindsight. It's like a slow motion crash, you know? Uh, the Great... No, no, it still feels depressing. Uh, <laughs> the Great Depression hits, okay? And Hoffa gets a job as a warehouse worker unloading crates on a dock at Kroger's also known as Ralph's on the West Coast. Um, This is a big deal, okay? His entire world has been, and was, currently poverty. I feel like I messed up that sentence, but we're going to leave it. I like it. Poverty and unemployment. Joblessness was the norm, and violence was honestly the only option again, and lower classes were fighting to get by, and they were fighting each other. Instead of fighting upward, they're just going laterally. Thousands of people were showing up for a single job posting. So securing a job was a huge deal. In 1932, it's the bottom of the Depression. And the United States is in the most unique crime wave that we've romanticized beyond belief. Mm. Think public enemies. (laughs) 
Bonnie and Clyde. J. Edgar Hoover's reign as FBI director, which was 48 years long, by the way. Wow. Mm-hmm. Hoffa organized his very first strike. And think of it as like a Wall Street versus Main Street type of strike. So he's coming up in labor politics. And he knows that the every person is loving Pretty Boy Floyd and Dillinger and these outlaws who are essentially exposing these parts of the system. And it's 100% affecting him and informing the growth that he would doggedly fight these governments and big businesses Because not only has he lived this essentially poor human's role that marginalized him and people like him with economic pressure, he's standing there willing to work and watching everyone around him doing the same. But seeing now, like, small farmers are having their land snapped up and all of these just unethical practices, you put the pieces together, right? Is that kind of like what's happening now, you know, because you see, like, places... Like Starbucks is oh, starting yeah. to unionize when everyone got together because they didn't want to lose movie theaters. And they're like, we're just going to fund GameStop mm-hmm. and AMC because guess what? The stock market's made up and we just finally all realized. Yeah. <laughs> so often Jimmy Hoffa is cited here with the mob as the rise of the organized labor union begins to take hold. There's a lot of misinformation here, though. At this time, the mob was muscle for hire not supporting or against the organized labor movement. Big businesses would hire them to break legs and were doing deeply unethical things. Mm. Hey, please refer to our Triangle Shortwaist Factory episode for additional examples of how businesses operated back in the day. And thank you. (laughs) Did you cry a little? I did. It's rough. Mobsters, if you will, were there to do the job and get paid. And honestly, it was the Depression Congratulations on your employment. (laughs) Was Jimmy Hoffa hiring mobsters to fight back against the same mobsters who were attacking his organization of labor? Duh. Smart man. I mean, if you can hire the guy to not attack you or attack the people who are attacking you, um, that's just called chess. Yeah, absolutely. And also, who's stopping the, like, where's the law here? Huh. Anybody else got questions? I have a ton. Nobody's asking them. They're like, oh, he did the wrong thing. Did he? Right. If his legs are about to get broken because Kroger hired a bad guy, why would he not go hire the same bad guy and say, what if you got two monies instead of (laughs) one money and you go and hit them? Wink, wink. Just saying. Right. We're going to circle back to that, though. I can't wait for that. Of course, Hoff is also linked to rum running during Prohibition. Who wasn't? And honestly, congratulations on your employment during the Depression. Good use of a bathtub. I mean, seriously, good use of a truck. (laughs) You have to do what you have to do. I feel like it is always someone who has never experienced the baseline of Maslow's hierarchy of needs insecurity that judges for things like this. Just like people who judge those who use OnlyFans to make money right now when they're job insecurity, left, right, up, down, center, diagonal. Yeah, I, I always find that funny because like people always criticize like people on Instagram or OnlyFans for doing that. But I'm like, they literally drive those websites. And it's also like the people who criticize it are also the people who are cr- clearly looking at it. It's such a yeah. weird thing. It's never like the pious people who are like, oh. No OnlyFans, because they're not even thinking of 
about it. <laughs> yeah, also, I think it is uh, biblical that you should take the plank out of your eye before you look at the speck in someone else's. Yes, also, Jesus told his disciples to gouge their own eyes out if looking at a woman caused them to want to sin. Yeah, men, <laughs> I think that there is a thing there that maybe if you're going to use the Bible to back up your terrible principles, maybe you should read it first. <laughs> they don't read it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't say that. But I co-signed. <laughs> Look, where we are in the story is that the fight for good old not rich people of America, helping them make more money, that was what Jimmy Hoffa was about. He knows exactly how much it sucks out there. He knows big business and government will use you like a magic eraser, wait until you are all chewed up and broken, and then attempt a three-pointer from the office chair. <laughs> Most of the time they miss and you get stepped on for the next 40 to 60 business days. <laughs> and that's what it feels like right now, everyone, by the way. Just letting you know. Co-sign that. <laughs> We're just going to co-sign back and forth. <laughs> so, he joins the union in 1933. And he quickly rose through the ranks, becoming a business agent for the local 299 in Detroit the same year. By 1937... He was elected president of the local and continued to strengthen his leadership abilities by forming the Michigan Conference of Teamsters in the early 1940s. He was a tireless organizer for the union and a champion of labor concerns. He even met his wife, Josephine, when she was on strike against the company where she worked. And he would remain married to Josephine for the rest of his life. Aww. Adorable! It doesn't matter if he potentially cheated on her. It's still adorable, okay? <laughs> I said what I said. We don't. We were not in that marriage. We do not know what went on there. Right. Adorable, okay? We stand a Josephine. <laughs> so this early on, we can agree he was no saint. Oh yeah. He was definitely, probably, comma, allegedly. Let's honestly call this entire episode alleged, just to be safe. <laughs> He's allegedly Jimmy Hoffa, even. <laughs> But involved with fighting back. Let's say, like, you know, some light car bombing. Right. Who wasn't? <laughs> <laughs> Who's to say? Who who, who amongst us hasn't thought? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Says my Irish ancestors from the, from the afterlife. <laughs> it was, at the time of this recording, Queen Elizabeth was actually getting uh, buried soon. And, like, I have no political opinion on Queen Elizabeth. I think, you know, she did some tough stuff. Like, you know, she helped work on jeeps and everything, helped keep... She had 30 corgis. Right. I mean, you know, there's there's some very admirable things about Queen Elizabeth. But she also, like, crushed rebellions in Africa and Ireland. And as someone who has African, Irish, and Scottish genes in me, you know, there's... There's a lot of my ancestors from the afterlife on the Great Plain just kind of being like, mm, you should, uh, you should not say anything about it. I'm like, all right, cool. Hey, well, uh, let's, I feel, uh, let's not talk about it. I feel like it's okay because how many British people have made fun of our political system? Right. And also, I feel like the British media is not letting the actual British voice come out. So, you know what? Here's to you, England. Yes. We'll cheers. make the jokes for you. <laughs> we got you. We got you. You're welcome. Moving on. <laughs> they can't censor us. <laughs> <Aye>! <laughs> not yet, at least. 
next. <laughs> Why Is that a little too real? <laughs> Sorry. They'll censor me in hell. <laughs> oh, speaking of. Just yes. kidding. But anyway. Back to our hero, Jimmy Hoffa. We say hero so loosely. We're, um, we're cap, not, lowercase h. Well, he's the hero of this story, but, you know, we can't really pass moral judgment because in this story, he's often described as like a Robin Hood, right? Mm. And he did have to keep the filthy scabs out. And speaking of England, for those of you who don't know, a scab is someone who crosses the picket line of a strike. And that origin of that word goes as far back as Elizabethan times. Not my times, but like Elizabeth I. (laughs) (laughs) That's serious stuff, right? So if someone goes to work in the place of someone who is striking, the strike doesn't mark out, right? Right. Keeping replacement workers out is what establishes the union's power. We don't work until you meet our terms. And only we do the work. You can't replace us for cheaper. We are the ones you want. That is the problem that Jimmy Hoffa was solving with... Creative means? Creative means, yes. But also his organizational skills, too, in convincing everyone around to join the union because together we're stronger. Right. We don't want to work for lower wages. We want to make a living wage. So 1937, this is when Jimmy Hoffa is first documented to have mob connections. It's sort of a clear, he's not beholden to them. It's mutually beneficial for the Teamsters and the mob alike. And then, of course, who are the Teamsters, you ask? I mentioned them earlier, but it's the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. It's also uh, known as the Teamsters Union, and it's a labor union in the U.S. and Canada. It was originally formed in 1903 as the merger of the Team Drivers International Union and the Teamsters National Union. The union now represents a diverse membership of blue-collar and professional workers in both the public and private sectors. The union has approximately 1.3 million members as of 2015. Did I just rip that off of Wikipedia to give you the official beautiful definition? (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. Okay, at this point, the speculation is that the Teamsters had a hand in spreading heroin, particularly Sicilian heroin. This can (laughs) (laughs) this can be attributed to a friend of Hoffa's, Frank Coppola. Do your best to not confuse him with the Coppola film family. (laughs) Do your best. But I won't tell you what to do. Okay. (laughs) Here's the deal. Frank Coppola did become friends with Jimmy Hoffa during the time that he needed some muscle, okay? Let me give you some background on who Frank Coppola was and who he was connected to. You didn't know you were going to get a little bit of, um, oops, the U.S. government did what now in this? But we're going to get a lot of, oops, the U.S. government did what now? There are a number of congressional committee reports documenting the relationship between the two, but it's also... World War II time? And Frank Coppola was a bootlegger initially in Los Angeles, a human trafficker in Mexico, allegedly. I couldn't find a lot of stuff backing that up to make me feel comfortable in saying that, but it was reported. And now a labor racketeer in Detroit, running drugs out of Cuba. He is basically a renaissance man. (laughs) You know? He does a lot. He would be deported back to Sicily in 1948, But guess what else is happening in 1948? 
communism and labor unions. Of course. Big stuff in Italy. I don't know if you all remember history, as in not too long ago of us telling the story. But we talked about 48 years ago for us was 1943. And so we are well within the living history for us. And Benny Mussolini is now only recently taken out of power, as I believe 1947 is the year the first Italian president takes office as the office is established. Mm. Did I say the scary word? Communism. And what are we currently in the story in the midst of, no, it's not toxic cishet men afraid of women's bathrooms. <laughs> it's the Red Scare. Ah! We're going to do the quick boot scoop back to 1938 when the House Un-American Activities Committee was formed. Their oh, yeah. investigations were all about the exposure of alleged communists who were in film industry or politics just warming their way into American society of government and whatever using subversive tactics and that led to people turning each other in left and right it created blacklisted employment happened in so many industries and do not forget good old boy joseph mccarthy of wisconsin our red scare poster boy for the anti-communist crusade that was verging on an inquisition He would use hearsay and intimidation and therefore was feared deeply. Do you know that in the movie Good Night and Good Luck, when they try to put actual footage of the real Joseph McCarthy on in the movie, test audiences responded negatively because they thought it was an actor and they felt that he was over the top and that no one would believe this guy. And that was the real one. Mm -hmm. I always find that very fascinating. Just a little perspective. Isn't it fascinating? Like, sometimes the real deal is unbelievable. It really is. I think there's going to be a lot of politicians that people are going to look back on in 30, 40 years and be like, how did anyone think that this person was someone to be taken seriously? And you're just going to be like, you just had to be there, man. Yeah. (laughs) Dude, they're going to be like, grandma. I'm going to be like, bruh. (laughs) Bruh, I don't know. I was there and I still, there's no answer. So this guy named Madison Cawthorn thought it would be a good idea to punch a tree, <laughs> dying tree in the forest. And that was supposed to be like his tough guy video. Uh, and people yeah. fell for this. They fell for it, man. If I had answers, they would be yours. But guess what? Nah, bruh. <laughs> That's exactly how I would speak to my grandchildren. <laughs> you gotta do it that way. You got to. You gotta just give it to them straight. That's why I'm sad, like, old people that went through the 70s don't speak to me like they're still in the 70s. I'm like, please, bring back the jargon. Bring it back. I want you to give me the authenticity. 30s and 40s slang is someone who's had to write a lot of, like, pieces in that time. Such great slang. Oh, it's a five-spot kid. Yeah, you know. Elegance. 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 With some cabbage, eh? <laughs> Can we just talk about, you know what? I don't think anyone but me appreciates the film Newsies, but it's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> okay, but we mentioned Joseph McCarthy. Is he going to show back up in the story? You bet your bottom butt it is. He's a recurring guest star. This story, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, he, oh, McCarthy's here. <laughs> You might feel like this side route to Sicily is going nowhere, but it's going somewhere. Okay. Just like any trip to Sicily. <laughs> any trip to Sicily. So in Italy, 
now looking as a communist wellspring, okay? The State Department cannot have that. The American State Department says no. So Frank Coppola was also not the kind of man who sat idly by. He turned himself into something of a power and information broker back in Italy. Mm. But also to Italian persons in government. So when World War II was over, the U.S. had Operation Gladio. You aware of that? Oh. They made deals with people considered to be people of consequence. But criminals, nonetheless. I mean, hey. That's what we do. (laughs) As the Cold War was beginning, and think of, like, our famous Italian bosses, like Lucky Luciano... Frank Coppola being one of those two and working for the U.S. government, Luciano and Coppola created this drug network stemming from Montreal. What? Then there were two routes, one straight to New York to Carmine Galente of the Bonanno family. Keep that name in mind. And the other stream went to Detroit over the Detroit River to Papa John Prizziola. Or Jimmy the Goon Caserano. Keep that name in your mind, too. Okay. These last two were the most significant and most important drug traffickers in America, according to Congressional Committee findings. So how does Hoffa factor in? Well, our Detroiters needed some way to conduct business. Have a little bit of Savile Affair. (laughs) Hoffa sets up a Teamster local for them to use. But it's a sham. It's a fake. It's a shell corp. Can we prove that we he knew about the narcotics trafficking? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think, taking from the last several years of our life and watching news and television, I don't know, a lot of things are seemingly harder to prove than one might think, especially whether or not someone knew something when something occurred. I bet I mean, hey. It's hard. Yeah. So allegedly he was involved in drug trafficking and heroin in the United States, thanks to government involvement in Sicily. It's amazing how many, how often you go back in history and you think about an explosion of drugs in society and how that comes usually from the government flooding it into communities. You've got this, you've got the cracking epidemic in the eighties, which is a great show. FX show snowfall talks about extensively. Oh yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's funny how often these epidemics of problems or drugs, now uh, narcotics with uh, in the last 10 years, oh, how yeah. those were given out by pharmaceutical companies. Like candy. And yet we have a war on drugs. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe we should go to the source. I didn't say that, but like maybe I did. <laughs> you can quote me on it, but I'll deny it. That's fair. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move down the line because we're only getting to 1952. We've got a long way to go. The Hoffa, I mean, he's already making history and he's not even president yet. Because in 1952, Dave Beck, the former VP, is now the president of the Teamsters. And Jimmy Hoffa has risen to become vice president. This is huge for the Teamsters. They're seeing skyrocketing Teamster numbers, and this is the rise of labor regulations. But now we're going to go, you know, five years ahead to the McClellan hearings, 1957. This is where the pot gets cooking, okay? 
Now, this isn't meant to be a political podcast, and we have to hit these politics because we were talking about Hoffa and labor politics. And first off, we have Robert Kennedy, fondly called Bobby by both the media and people close to him and people not close to him, like, you know, regular people. <laughs> and we're going to call him Bobby because my brother's name is Robert, and therefore he's Robert. <laughs> Bobby Kennedy. Okay. And he's working with this man named John McClellan toward what would be called the McClellan Committee against Hoffa and whatever. It also would be called improper activities in labor management. Right. Huh. The McClellan hearing was a way to attack the union movement in the public sphere, branding it as a movement full of criminals and what was the biggest union to hit? The Teamsters. Of course. Let's make an example of blue-collar workers, right? So, we have this man named John Cy Chiesty. He sets Hoffa up. Let's figure out how. Okay, so Hoffa wants him to spy on Bobby Kennedy, who actually turns him into Kennedy. So the FBI catches him on film, and Hoffa is then indicted and charged with extortion. This is a weird situation of gotcha. Like... It's okay to spy, but only if you're a spy for the government. Right. Like, he was clearly in Hoffa's circle, and his only, quote, redeeming quality would be to rat on the boss that he took money for doing and let the government record it? I'm like, hmm, weird. So basically they got mad that he played them in their own game. Well, I mean, like, they tried to get Jimmy Hoffa doing the same thing Hoffa was doing. Right. And I'm like, but what about your gotcha? You both got got. Right. Huh. But it's 1957. What? It was... So, okay, he goes to trial for this, right? Mm. During this trial, you're going to love this. His friend, Jimmy Hoffa's friend, right? Joe Lewis, <laughs> also known as the Brown Bomber, and one of the best boxers of all time, mm. still... By the way, still one of the best boxes of all time, was behind him on the front row of this trial. Yeah, so if that would be equated today, let's say I'm charged. That's like having Floyd Mayweather sit right behind me at trial and just like, what's good? <laughs> what's good? So uh, Jimmy Hoffa is acquitted at that charge. Shout out to Joe Lewis for being a sitting legend there. Right. A sitting legend. So back to the McClellan hearing, with Bobby Kennedy presiding over it, Jimmy Hoffa had a man named Edward Bennett Williams representing him. Mm. He does come back to the story. He was a smart dude. So we're going to hit the high notes, okay? First of all, the hatred between Jimmy Hoffa and Bobby Kennedy was legendary. Yes. Hoffa has zero respect for him, and it makes total sense. A Kennedy is the antithesis of everything Hoffa had lived through, achieved, and become. Hoffa was a legend in his own right, and the family that could back him was the every person of America. He literally made something of himself and came from a less than fortunate background. That is the American dream, where you can affect change and not only have come from inherited wealth and connection. Don't forget... Who's the father of Bobby Kennedy? Hmm, That's Joe Kennedy, one of the richest men in America and the former ambassador of England during FDR's tenure. Yeah, yeah, tenure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's 
the brother of Bobby Kennedy. Oh yeah, that's JFK. Mm -hmm. We're going to get there. The disdain, palpable. My favorite photo, I can't say I hate Bobby Kennedy because I don't. But there's this photo where Jimmy Hoffa goes to wipe his eye with his middle finger and it is cleared. That's the bird, baby. <laughs> that's the bird. So some say Bobby Kennedy saw Jimmy Hoffa as like a dictator to the union, like oppressing the working class. I find that an interesting take. I have this amazing gift of hindsight being in like 2020 and not the late 1950s. <laughs> My opinion, if we're talking about the facts here, which we are. we do. Yeah. <laughs> I see the government and big business rising to those obscene levels and the union leaders bidding to meet the challenge. I'm not living it, so all I can say is from what I understand. That's my thought. But you know how I love to spoil endings, right? Of course. Despite no evidence of any mismanagement or organized crime infiltration, Kennedy and uh, McClellan, they go ahead and there's a five-week series of hearings that produce no evidence of corruption. Oof. Oh, yeah. So they drag them through trial, legendary trials... You can actually watch them. I, I think I know that you can watch one of them on YouTube. Wow. Yes, I did. How was it? Is it still very thrilling or is it very stuffy? I, to me, it was thrilling because I understood the backstory, having done all this research. So now that I've told you it and I have a little more um, and also hearing them speak mm. because they have a different cadence than we do. Right. And hearing him talk there is something about the fact that, like, Jimmy Hoffa going toe-to-toe -to -toe with this Harvard-educated dude, classically beautiful, and Jimmy Hoffa ripping him up. Ooh. You know what I mean? Right. Like, he's clearly the smarter guy. It's like the street smart showing that I'm actually smarter than you. Even yeah. Even though it's like I don't have the formal education that you have. Yeah, and there's something about that. The questions he, were, he was being asked were stupid. There was a question that he was asked where it was like, did you say you were going to break this guy's legs? And he just waves it off and he's like, it was a figure of speech. I won't even address that. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. legitimate. Right, right. And... You were grasping at straws in this case. Oh, boy. And it just, you know. No, no, you you have to admire that because this is someone who's really playing at, like, a disadvantage mm -hmm. power-wise. And yet they're able to talk it out because it's like there's an attempt at character assassination. They yeah. really don't have a lot of evidence. So they're trying to care. They're trying to change public opinion of the Teamsters Union. And, and him specifically. Like, right. They're trying to demonize him. Right. And so... He's just basically not playing their game. And it's like, oh, if you're going to put me on TV, I'm going to make people like me more. Yeah. And I, it did not affect his popularity with the Teamsters. But also, remember how I said McCarthy would make a pop? Oh, yes. Uh, never forget, he was a family friend of the Kennedys. <laughs> and <laughs> this was Bobby's chance for national exposure. Mythologizing Jimmy Hoffa, a union-creating, worker-lifting man of the people, into the curse that is rotting America from the inside out. And Bobby Kennedy would protect all of you. The son of wealth and class privilege who certainly understands your troubles. Sure. <laughs> Doesn't it really reframe that narrative? It and really don't, does. Don't forget the Christian aspects, too. The country needed Jesus and Jimmy Hoffa, and the likes of him did not provide that. He right. provided jobs, not Jesus. Maybe, you know, you don't have to do all things all the time. <laughs> uh, 
There was also the allegation that Jimmy Hoffa posed a national security threat only because he, quote, could shut down trucking with the Teamsters, which, I mean, the genius Texas governor did with that mandatory search for illegal immigration. Oh, yes. Where he found, like, blown tires and oil changes. Do you remember that? Where he, like, I remember shut that. shut it down. Like, for two weeks, you couldn't get, like, any food because, like, our food was, like, so expensive because yeah. he wanted to do this political stunt. And that was in 2022. Right. Right? But <laughs> a national security threat for that, that he could... Possibly shut down trucking. Possibly. Possibly. And that he was friendly with organized crime because 20 years ago he got friendly. But he never considered himself a racketeer. And um, the other thing about being in organized crime is that you're born into it. Jimmy Hoffa was not born into organized crime. He was not an associate. He did not take the Omerta. And he was not beholden to anyone. He was a free agent, y'all. Business is business. There's some plot twist in there, too, but, you know. Right. So, how did he take over the presidency of the Teamsters from Dave Beck, who'd worked really hard to get there in the first place? Let's hit it. Oh. So, in 1957, Beck is called to testify before the United States Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor Management. He was so harshly interrogated by the committee by Bobby Kennedy, about 322000 missing dollars. That's a lot of dollars. There's a lot, especially in that time. I know, right? From the Union Treasury. Dave Beck invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination 117 times Woo. and then declined to seek re-election in 1957 and was succeeded by Hoffa. Oh, my goodness. That is how he got it. He, he got a fair and square. It's not like he shot the guy. Right. He became president because people wanted him to be president. Right. Beck was like, I can either go to jail or step down from this union. And he decided to step down from the union. Also, I do believe he stepped down with Beck's blessing. Or like he got the presidency with Beck's blessing. So what's the most valuable asset of the Teamsters? The pension fund. Oh, yes. Union casualty pension. This was ran by Paul and Alan Dorfman. They were father and stepson. Alone, an entire episode could be done about Alan Dorfman. Scorsese's film Casino is the dramatized version of, like, the situation and Dorfman's in it. Now, here's the trip. Dorfman was an insurance man. He was definitely friendly with the mob and let the mob get all up in the investments. Mm. So a lot of the Vegas Strip was financed by Central Pension. So did you know that the Teamsters financed the Vegas Strip? I did, but because of Scorsese. <laughs> yes. So the Tropicana, the Circus Circus, the Aladdin, Caesar's Palace, the Hacienda, the Stardust, and the Fremont were all funded with the Teamsters pension money. And though the mob was involved, the pension money was flowing. Even in his, quote, corrupt phase, if that's what you choose to call it, Teamsters received extremely wealthy pensions. Their wages were far higher than truck drivers 20 years prior. However, to tell you the end of Dorfman's story, he was gunned down in Chicago in the early 80s after 30 years with the Teamsters and was about to go to jail after conviction of bribery. (laughs) (laughs) After a conviction of bribery. Mm. Rough way to go. It is a rough way to go. Um, I don't know if that's been solved. I didn't look. Because what if I did another episode? Who's to say? (laughs) But 
1964, Hoffa had negotiated an agreement between 400,000 union members and 16,000 trucking companies that raised workers' wages substantially. So, no one can say he was not out for his workers. He did what they asked, and he did make sure they received hefty pensions and substantial wages. And because of his work, he did give people doing blue-collar jobs a good way to survive and live. Of course, there were everyone else helping him, but at the top, and he's the one vilified. Uh, Yeah, I mean, people were getting good money for doing... The workers, who are just doing an honest day's work, are getting good money and able to provide for their family. And they were... That's actually why trucking was even an industry someone could do for a long time. You know what I mean? You could make a decent living off of trucking because of the work the Teamsters did and, like, a lot of the professions the Teamsters cover. I mean, in film, both of us are filmmakers, Teamsters are involved. Yeah. And we thank you for it. Yes, thank you. And they have a lot of power because you have to move so many things around, so many things you have to get from A to B. And who's going to do that? A Teamster. Thank your local Teamsters, because I certainly do. All right. We are going to shift focus now from positivity to our our government did what now? (laughs) So the next question is, did Jimmy Hoffa assist in any Fidel Castro assassination attempts? Ooh. What? <laughs> I've not heard this. This is new for me. So we're in December of 1959 to August of 1960. These details are too good. Okay, so you're going to have to track with me. Okay. To understand how everyone's connected because these connections are going to go through the end of part two. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm plugged in. So his old lawyer, remember him, Edward Bennett Williams. He was close friends and a business partner with a man named Robert Mayhew, who was also connected to the CIA. They shared office space back in Washington, D.C. Hoffa had a Miami Teamsters building set up by a man named Roland McMaster, often called his right hand, a high-ranking Teamsters member and a friend. Who has a spot there in that building? Robert Mayhew. Who else has a spot? Remember this name, y'all. Santo Traficante, one of the most powerful organized crime bosses in the country, especially in the South. Mm. So in this Teamster building, there are a ton of Cuban exiles and anti-Castro business happening. Why, might you ask? Well, Fidel Castro has just taken over Cuba. Of course, America is not pleased because that means communism has come to Cuba. Eisenhower is president, and he can't have that. So Eisenhower had ordered Castro's assassination to happen, but for it to never be traced back to the United States. Like we do, right? Of course. Anyone smell Iran-Contra? Or is it just me? (laughs) (laughs) So we have this covert ops with Robert Mayhew, Miami boss Traficante, and Cuban exiles. Complete coincidence? I mean, they're in a Teamsters building set up by Hoffa's essentially right-hand man. I mean, it's totally a coincidence because Fidel died in 2008. But I have reliable information that he was involved, which means he could have just owned the building. I mean, 
He could have been like, oh, hey, you know, some people are going to, our friends across the river are going to be using one of these office spaces, you know, so don't, yeah. don't do anything weird in there. Okay. Okay, sure. More informed people with CIA information will know more information. If this is where the rabbit hole stops for you, we're going to go somewhere else. There's more ground to cover. But jump in that mystery, because it's wild. <laughs> Because we're going to actually move over to the JFK assassination. Oh my goodness. I know. You thought that this was going to be just casual, like, you know, whatever. No. Mm-mm. This is why I love this podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> this is why I love being on it. It's like, you're getting all the angles here. This isn't twist and turns. Like, we have gone on a go-kart track and we're on a tricycle. <laughs> now, I'm going to blow all of your conspiratorial minds. Because it's been speculated that the failed attempts on Fidel Castro's life allegedly, have been the reason behind JFK's assassination. That makes sense! It makes sense. I've heard that before as well. It it makes sense. You tried to kill me, Buster. But it's the most interesting motivation I've ever heard. Also, what happened under Kennedy's term was, you guessed it, the Bay of Pigs. So for those of you who have forgotten... No, only by its name or need a refresh, the Bay of Pigs invasion was a failed landing operation on the southwestern coast of Cuba in 1961 by Cuban exiles who opposed Castro's Cuban revolution. And it was covertly, well, poorly covertly, financed and directed by the U.S. government. The operation took place at the height of the Cold War and its failure influenced relationships between Cuba, the United States, and the Soviet Union. Remember, the Soviet Union backed Cuba. Right. Huh. Also, here's another thing regarding the JFK assassination. Bobby Kennedy is now the AG of the U.S., which, I mean, I wonder how he got that gig, am I right? Right, right, right. (laughs) Do you think he forgot the slights from the Hoffa himself? His deep dislike of the Teamsters? His hatred of organized crime and figures of power who he saw as a threat to the American way? All of those who had worked together, allegedly, in tandem with Dwight Eisenhower mere years ago with an unspoken blessing of carry on and go about your business? You bet your butt he didn't. (laughs) So, I'm going to jump in time, but this is the part where we talk about the civil rights movement. Because otherwise, it'd get really confusing. But we have to go down a different road and then turn back to Bobby Kennedy. So before we go, we're going to take a moment to discuss Hoffa's work that walked alongside with civil rights and then when it intersected. Hoffa would not meet Martin Luther King Jr. until 1965. That's why I said we we got to turn, 1965. But it might be shocking to find out that Hoffa enacted a non-discriminatory policy as general precedent into the Teamsters bylaws when he became president in 1958. Hmm. The policy was outlined in a letter to all members that went out in April of 1958. Here is part of the letter. As Americans, we should be opposed to bigotry and racial discrimination at every turn and do everything possible to make the Bill of Rights a reality for every citizen. That's his direct quote. And then he quotes the Teamster International Constitution, Section 2, Article 2, from 1958. Any person of good moral character employed in the crafts 
or the various employments over which the International Union has jurisdiction shall be eligible to this organization. Oh, pretty cool stuff. 1958. He said, you can't be fucking racist. And that is why Teamsters were diverse. Makes sense. When you see photos of Teamsters rallying, it's very diverse. Very diverse. I've seen a few pictures, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't realize that it was just like that Hoffa was the one who was spearheading like, no, no. I wouldn't say he was spearheading, though. I don't think he necessarily saw it as a spearhead. I think he saw it as, this is, well, hold on. I actually have a quote. Well, not necessarily that. I I think he saw it, and this is my personal opinion, because I have a quote from him. But I think he saw it as, it's obvious we are all human beings. Mm. This is ridiculous that we're still doing that. Let's move on. And if you remember at the top of the episode, he was raised around KKK members. Right. What did that inform on him? Mm. I think that the proof in the pudding here is it's not about the kind of people you grow up around. I think that being a good person and the way of treating people the way you want to be treated and he treated all of the Teamsters equally. And that was before it was cool to do so. Right. You know? Right. I think that that speaks to his character in some degree. I would say so, yeah. And so there was uh, a moment in 1959, the Senate Rackets Committee, there's an article published about it saying that he attempted to ban black men from working in a local 299. But here's the thing. What weren't they trying to charge him with? Right. it was everything. He was trying to charge at, him with everything. At, like they're throwing everything at him. It was basically. spaghetti on the wall, right? Right. And he's president. How did he have the time for one local to kick up some nonsense? Right? Mm. That sounds like someone got the boot for bad behavior. Like, right. you did what now? Okay, bye. Was this supposed to be a gotcha? Let me tell you how he responds. They hire Augustus G. Parker, the first black lawyer for the Teamsters, but certainly not the last. Then hilariously, Hoffa's praise for anti-discriminatory hiring practices by the National Bar Association, especially in the South. Right. There was a quote from Hoffa's memoir that does seem super sassy, like tongue-in-cheek, and this is how (laughs) I read it. Many inequities continue to exist in trucking circles in various parts of the union, and I had come to realize that only a strong, solid, large union could end them. I was arguing against racism long before the federal politicians were aware of it as an issue. (laughs) Yes, it definitely seems very sassy. They never weren't. (laughs) It's when they decided to to do it. They were still segregated at this point. When it was politically expedient. Indeed. So, in 1963, Hoffa did give conflicting thoughts on the March on Washington. At first, he thought it wasn't effective and it wasn't going to make change. Then, once it was a legendary event and hugely successful, people took it seriously. He was not afraid to bite the bullet and admit the change of mind. It's like, you don't have to stick to bad opinions. Wow. A lot of people could learn from that. (laughs) And if you think about it, when he came up fighting nearly 30 years prior, it was a fight. And Congress did diddly. It seems his thoughts were, force them to change fundamentally and prove your worth through union brotherhood. But the landscape had changed. And when he was proven wrong, 
He didn't seem to feel the shame to stick to the old opinion. He was like, no, you did it. And this is even better. I'm glad, you know? Right. It wasn't like he was reading against it. He just felt like, nah, this is this isn't going to work. Yeah, he didn't think it would work. It's not that he was against the concept. He just didn't think it would work. A march would be the thing to work, right? right? He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's like a warm feeling, warm feeling, fuzzy kind of guy. So I, I would imagine he was not super sold on the idea of a peaceful march. But I mean, <laughs> we know those marches weren't peaceful, right? Because we unfortunately need to talk about Selma. So March seventh, nineteen sixty-five, Bloody Sunday. We know it. Mm-hmm. The Selma March, another day that we should talk about, but not today. A hard and disgusting day of American history that should be taught in schools because it is important to see this and to know our American history. Mm-hmm. The march was unsuccessful, but we were not swayed. March 21st to the 25th, the Selma March completed. 16,000 people marched from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama. Men, women, and children of many backgrounds participated, though mostly black Americans were the majority of the marchers. Viola Gregg Liuzzo was a white woman from out of state, and Leroy Moton, a black man who was assisting her, helped shuttle marchers safely back to Selma after the marchers completed the trek to Montgomery. The march was dangerous, and honestly hell, and the distance back was growing more dangerous. During a trip back, Liuzzo was shot and killed by a, quote, carload of Plan Night Riders. Mm. Leroy Moten was thankfully not injured and survived. This is a huge ordeal, not only because J. Edgar Hoover decided to go on a smear campaign, but the fact that we had a homegrown terror cell that you can't ignore. And of course, they killed a white woman, so it's time to pay attention to that part. She wasn't the only white person to pay attention to the cause, but I doubt she had any regrets of putting herself in the line of fire. She had been warned how dangerous it could be, and she was willing to go anyway to be of service to her fellow humans. Oh no, (laughs) it's not in the press that anyone could support civil rights, even a mother of five. Right. So at her funeral, Jimmy Hoffa does attend. Mr. Liuzzo was a teamster, and of course, We know that his record has proven that he and Martin Luther King Jr. had very similar ideologies. It's not just the March on Washington. It's the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. The iconic I Have a Dream speech was about so much more than just racial equality, but social equality. Without social equality, racial inequality is just putting it under another name. Right. At the funeral, Jimmy Hoffa presents Martin Luther King Jr. and the SLCL a check for $25,000 for their work in racial equality. In today's money, that's $235,056.35. That's a lot of money, but for a wonderful cause. That's very interesting. I never knew that about Hoffa. I mean, I knew that Hoffa was responsible for more equality within the union um but i had no idea that he was that involved also i did know about how they sanitized the march on washington in history books Mm -hmm. to not talk about the union aspects of the march that it was also an economic march that was a jobs march just Mm -hmm. like they don't talk about mlk speeches on vietnam even though many people think that's actually what got him killed yeah well a lot of people believe that his 
stances on social equality or, or what got him killed because without the social, like, uh, the rise of class structure and stuff like that, right. there was no way to keep the leverage. And so they did have similar ideology. Well, Martin Luther King spoke a lot in Appalachia, America, even though they don't want to talk about that. Oh, he yeah. was going to bat for predominantly white neighborhoods that were getting crushed by these coal companies. With, yeah, and that's exactly what he did. Um Hoffa was saying, no, do not take this kind of behavior right. by people who are taking advantage of you. So they were pretty aligned on a few things. Yeah, and there's a photo of them together when oh. he presents the check. I had no idea. Yeah, it's a, actually like, I don't know why, but it actually kind of made me tear up a little bit. Hmm. Because it's at her funeral. Right. Where he hands the check. And I think it's a... I mean, some people may say, oh, it's for press coverage, it's for this. It's not a terribly popular thing to do at the that's, time. Yeah, I say, like, that's like, yeah, it's a, like literally they just killed a white woman. And, and he's like, she, she was part of the Teamster family. I'm here and, and I'm going to support her. And I know that MLK was a, like, he supported the fact that like, this is a place that you can safely get a job right. as a black person is working under something covered by the Teamster Union because they do protect you right. and make sure that you are not treated poorly because of the color of your skin. Well, I mean, the reason that MLK was in Memphis where he got killed was because he was there protesting sanitation workers and the unsafe and bad conditions they were under, yeah. which was linked, obviously, to the Teamsters Union as well. I mean, there's it's all connected, which I think is very fascinating about learning all some of these things like I've never heard about is how connected you can see the path of, like, why these people were doing what they were doing. And that's the thing that when I started this topic in researching, that's why I was like, oh, my God, once you put it in lateral history, you're like, holy, holy shit. I can't believe that I've always been taught that he was a horrible man and he was a boogeyman and that he was this criminal. And then, like, all of a sudden what I've, done and researched and discovered he was not that person he had agendas of course who doesn't and he had self-fulfilling things and who doesn't but what i understand and have reasoned and everything that comes with it he's somebody else you know and the more that we're going to get into the story it does change my opinion of course like if you asked me to pick what was what's his moral alignment i would say neutral neutral <laughs> um but honestly who isn't hmm. but yeah i like reading about like you know how he operated and i think that if he were around today he totally would have been a feminist and been like, yeah, let women work. Why not? Right. Yeah, it sounds like his it. wife was working. Right. I mean, that's where you met. Literally, he met his wife like when she was during the middle of a, a protest. A, a uh, yeah. It's and like he, he probably, probably was like, damn. Right. You know. And also, <laughs> the wording of that 1958 statement does not say man; it says citizen and person. Right. And that means a lot to me as a woman. Like, yeah, it does mean that it was written with the foresight of women being in the workplace mm. and i think obviously he met his wife during a strike perhaps she had that influence on him mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah. but also 
I, I, I have to appreciate that, you know? Who else stood up for us? Right. <laughs> you know? Well, it's funny that the people who often stood up for folks are the ones that history typically vilifies. The ones that stood up for, like, people. I'm not saying that Jimmy Hoffa was a saint, as I know we are going to get way more into. But it's, uh, it is, I just think it's funny. I mean, you know, it's like you look at the character like Malcolm X, who, if you actually listen to a lot of his speeches, was not oh. preaching anything particularly yeah. very radical. But because he was more threatening than MLK, he is painted as the dangerous one. But you know know what's so interesting is like, we have a very sanitized version of who MLK was. And we have a very sanitized version of all of these figures. And when you start doing the deep dive yourself, you're like, oh my God, no, they're a real person. And they've done, they messed up. They weren't perfect and that's okay because you can't be perfect, right? And so seeing these things and seeing people acting on their own agenda and for a greater cause, like a, because they're not, they're not Jesus, you know? Right. They're people and they're doing their best and they can only do the best with what they have. And that's why I'm saying like, I've got 2022 hindsight. Right. I'm looking at it with my lens, but these people are living this life. You know what I'm saying? Day-to-day struggles. Oh, yeah. And that's why I find him so interesting. But let's get back to the Bobby Kennedy of it all. Because funny story is my dad actually shook Bobby Kennedy's hand the day before he was assassinated. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Or at least that's how it goes. I don't know how the real story goes. The last great liberal hope. I know. Bobby Kennedy. But now you're seeing he actually wasn't as liberal as we thought. Right, right. And I do think, like, if Bobby Kennedy had been around longer, he probably would have started swaying. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, when you grow up in that kind of environment, like, this is why I brought up the environment of Jimmy Hoffa is because it's so intriguing to see how did this man become who he is. And when people say, well, they had grew up in this and that's the only reason they're like this. And of course, he's a white supremacist because he grew up in a white supremacist culture. So did Jimmy Hoffa and he wasn't. Right. Well, it's always like they're from a different time. I'm like, yeah, but there are people who weren't assholes like during the time. And like and now they're in a different time. So it's like they didn't evolve or change over the last like 40 years. There was a, <laughs> so there was this person and I hate the fact that I didn't catch their name. I want to say that they were a black sociologist hmm. and Billy Porter had like reposted on one of his social media accounts. And so I can't remember which one, but it was a long time ago. And they were speaking about this sociologist, I believe, when you don't teach slavery the right way. You rob white children the right to identify with the abolitionists. Right. And when you, that's all about the reframing of the narrative. Why should white children feel bad when they can ally themselves with some of the heroes that do look like them? Tell the story right. Right. Tell the story right. And most white people during slavery didn't own slaves. So it's like, I I think that's such like a fault, like as they try to like change history or like sanitize history for students. I'm like, it's like, this also leaves out the fact that most white people probably were at least in a passive sense against slavery in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, politically, they were like, it's more expedient for them just to not really get involved with it. It's like, but you're robbing so many people. And I love that quote of being like, yeah, like, what would I have done? 
it's there's a great quote that I, I tell people all the time. It's like someone asks, like, if you ever wonder what you would have done during the civil rights era, it's what you're doing right now. If if you are passive and back away from it and don't want to get involved and don't want to speak out or say anything or help make things better, that's who you would have been in the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s. It's like no one's saying you have to be the next Malcolm X, Jimmy Hoffa, or MLK, but it's what you do now is very reminiscent. You're you're probably not going to step too much outside of the sphere of what you do now back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I also think of certain situations. All it took for the Montgomery bus boycott was for Rosa Parks to say no. Right. I will not take this anymore. And that is the bravest, most simple thing to do. And you have to th- consider everything that she thought about, everything she realized in that moment when she said no. She was like, I am a person and my butt is staying right here. Right. And just because you are someone who thinks they're better than me, that no more. I am done. Right. And it's not a superhero quality. And so, like, not telling Jimmy Hoffa's story the way that it's supposed to be told accurately. Right. Is robbing students and robbing people who want to understand the labor movements the actual history of how it came about. Yes. And here we are today, not understanding fully why workers are being taken advantage of when we have the reasons why. Mm. So let's get back to Bobby Kennedy, okay? Okay. Hoffa gets put on trial for antitrust violations, which Mm. is his fourth criminal trial in 10 years. Gosh. This is 1963. Bobby's back at it again. This time he had a mole. Ed Grady Parton. Protein. Parton. We're going to go with Parton. I like that. In the Teamsters. He has a mole in Teamsters. To figure out if Hoffa was tampering with that jury. Mm. But this guy, Ed, was actually out on bail for manslaughter and embezzlement of union funds. <laughs> what? <laughs> And then, of course, he becomes this convenient turncoat. He steps forward because apparently Jimmy Hoppe has told him he has plans to knock out Bobby. Just knock him out of the picture. Wow. So they polygraph him. And if you've listened before, you know how I feel about polygraphs. It measures things. I told my sister-in-law, Jennifer, that I would admit to being the Lindbergh baby if I got put under one of those things. <laughs> if they're looking at me to having confess a crime. Okay. If an honest person can fail and a liar can pass, hmm, where does that leave us with this? It is not admissible in court. Ed passes on both of these issues of jury tampering and this alleged plot to kill Bobby Kennedy. However, an informant tells the FBI in 1962 that Bobby's not the target. They're going to go for the one who controls him. Big brother, so to speak. JFK. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, man. Are we talking about the JFK assassination again? Yes, we are. Because (laughs) I don't know if you know it happened. But also, I don't know if you know the Bobby Kennedy assassination happened, too. So (laughs) they allegedly have someone to do the job. Allegedly, this informant's name is Carlos Marcello. Put that name in your noodle. Don't lose it. And he had a partner. 
Santo Traficante. Oh yes, still important. I remember. Yeah, yeah. The South, the the South King of Crime. Oh, I like that. Traficante said he spoke to another FBI informant. His name was allegedly Jose Ailman, who named Jimmy Hoffa as the one arranging this assassination. And I realize that I can't leave you hanging with all of that information right there, so here we go. Weeks leading up to the murder of JFK by Lee Harvey Oswald and the additional Lee Harvey Oswald murder by Jack Ruby, they apparently had the information that the two had close ties with both the mob and the Teamsters, and it was part of an overall plot. Will I be leaving all that information to Sizzle? Was Hoffa actually involved in the assassination of JFK and the subsequent murder of Lee Harvey Oswald? The Church Committee, the Senate investigation that went into U.S. intelligence operations, did determine Hoffa fit the criteria by having means, motive, and opportunity to assist in the assassination of JFK, but that cannot conclude he did. I feel like anybody in the CIA also could fit that bill. Right. Means motive, opportunity. But I mean, I'm just a podcaster. Moving on. Okay, so back to Bobby. He's going after Jimmy again. Hoffa is indeed convicted of jury tampering and fraud. Mm -hmm. He gets an eight-year sentence. Somehow in Chicago, he receives a conviction regarding pension fraud and received five years. So he's got a 13-year prison sentence. And as Bobby Kennedy probably dreamed, fanfare played behind the newsreel that discusses Hoffa going to prison. Mm Mm-hmm. Literal fanfare. I have never... Did we play fanfare when Epstein went to prison? (laughs) Where's the decorum? (laughs) Jesus Christ. So Hoffa goes to Lewisburg Federal Prison. Here's the real gag, okay? He is housed with the Genovese mob captain, Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano. Mm. Do not forget Tony Pro, okay? He's going to be in the story. Important guy. He's a pro. He was the president of a huge local Teamsters in the New Jersey area at that time. There's photos of them together. They were friends at one point. This is no longer the case. (laughs) They get into an actual fist fight. And Hoffa is heard saying, it's guys like you that got me in here in the first place. Which also does go to the fact that Hoffa both did not see himself as a racketeer just had a mutually beneficial alliance, and he did not approve of at least some of the methodology that was being used inside the Teamsters at the time. Also, Tony Pro did threaten the life of his grandchildren, as Hoffa's children were fully grown at this time, like they were adults. Mm. Rude. Very rude. Rude. They don't have to go after the kids. We don't go after babies. Jeez. (laughs) Okay, so meanwhile on the outside, right? 1964 to 66. In the mob world, right? We have the banana wars. It is really hard for me not to say banana, but I'm going to do everything I can in my power because this was a hard time. Okay? So we have Joe Bonanno, his son Bill Bonanno. He makes a wild, absolutely wild decision to take out three of the five heads of the five families. Oh my God. And as much as I would love to get into how organized crime in America functions, this is not that episode, okay? I honestly could and should make an entire podcast out of it, but 
this decision was choice. Okay? So then we have Joe Bonanno entering the chat, then leaving the chat, then heading to Tucson, Arizona. Shout out to Tucson. You probably never thought you'd get on the show. But here you are. We got you. You made it. You made it. So Joe Bonanno rolls up into Tucson and he beep boop beeps, calls up and makes a pact with some of the Southern crime bosses. Oh, yes. The plot chickens. (laughs) One of them, you might remember him, boss of New Orleans, Carlos Marcello. Come on down. The price is right. Yes, indeed. And who was the other? Mm, you are about to win a new car because Santo Traficante. Ooh. He has really bebopped into this story. Here's the next gag. They decide they want to control Hoffa. Ooh. Which means they can control the Teamster Pension Fund. Right. What was this all about in the end? What, like, what do they want? The Robert De Niro of it all? Yeah, the De Niro. The money. I know, it's boring. It's just the cash, okay? <laughs> it's almost always the cash. It's always the money. How boring is that? So, in 1968, Joe Bonanno retires from all business under the threat of death from the Mafia Commission. So, pretty much, the commission puts band-aids on everything in the families, and uh, that idea is still there, though, right? Right. We, they want the Teamster Pension Fund. So in 1971, do you know who's president? Would that be Nixon? It is indeed. In December, Richard Nixon grants Jimmy Hoffa a pardon, and he is released from prison. There's an adorable video of his welcome home party. (laughs) It's actually really cute, you know? By the way, he remains married to the same woman for all his life and through all of this, and it doesn't matter in the grand scheme, but still precious! How long was he in prison again for? The total incarceration of Jimmy Hoffa was from 1967 to 1971. Mm. Oh, yeah. Got on about a third of the time. Oh, yeah. And he was stuck with some dude he hated. (laughs) Let's unpack that. Think of the person that you cannot stand the most and sharing a cell with them. Oh, I'd be so mad. Like. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And it's probably someone who was, like, responsible for getting you there in the first place. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, we're fighting. Uh, yeah, they did. <laughs> and these guys were not young. Like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, you take a punch at that age, like, you're going to be feeling it for, like, a week. You're going to be feeling it <laughs> until next semester. <laughs> oh, my God. So most unions donated on the basis of political party. Hoffa donates on the concept of who would best support the causes of the Teamsters and themselves. Right. And they support whoever will forward their agenda. So he's not party loyal. He donates to Nixon. Nixon gives him a pardon. Delightful. So easy. Like, I feel like that's an easy answer. (laughs) This move did harm Nixon's reputation and adds to Nixon's paranoia in later years. We do know how his presidency panned out. Yeah. We're we're aware. I think at the top of the episode, I mentioned something called the Watergate scandal. (laughs) Part of the deal, though, is that it required Hoffa not run for Teamster president until 1980. So essentially, he's banned from running for president for the Teamsters. However, he has a pretty big following. So by the time Hoffa is released from 1971, mood towards unions had changed. And essentially, big business and government had won. So thanks, Bobby Kennedy, for that one. Mm. Kneecapping that movement. 
Jimmy Hoffa and others like him were vilified as being part of the problem with the system. And those who were a bit younger and unaware of what life was like for blue collar workers before did not see the value or good that had been done by the Teamsters and unions like them in fighting for American people. That's got to be disheartening. Yeah. You're like, those kids! Except those kids didn't have access to the internet. They just knew what they knew from... Right, the news, a couple of local papers. Yeah. What was let out to them, you know? Right, just like three news channels at that point. But here's the other gag. While he was in prison, Vice President Frank Fitzsimmons had the Teamsters, and he was allegedly even more friendly with organized crime. Mm. He let the monkeys run the circus, all right. And it was a hell of a show. People come to see the monkeys. Give them a typewriter, and apparently we'll get Titus Andronicus one day. (laughs) And that's the way everyone liked it. The union leadership did not seem to want Hoffa back in power anymore, but the rank-and-file members certainly did. He was ready to take up the mantle once again. He had always seen the relationship with organized crime as 50-50, a give and take, so to speak. He got out as much as he gave in. Frank Fitzsimmons was a lapdog to organized crime. Hoffa hated it. That's not what he had built the Teamsters for so many years to become. He was even willing to not only push back on mob support, but start kicking out to get those things back into order. Many of those rank-and-file members were ready to back the play, so much so that he could easily win the 1976 election for Teamster president. Mm. That would be really terrible for organized crime, right? Right. They got the perfect lapdog. Remember the plan to get a control of the pension fund? Right. And Hoffa was banned from running for president until 1980, yeah? Right. So a well-kept secret... Hidden secret that apparently the FBI sat on for some years was that Hoffa had turned into an FBI informant. Oh. So considering how displeased he was with organized crime's involvement in the union and how it definitely changed the scope and trajectory in the 70s, it was a natural choice. In exchange for his cooperation, word on the playground had been that the ban would lift and Hoffa could and would run in 1976. And with the support that he had within the Teamsters, there's no way he wouldn't win. Right. But the chessboard is different. His relationship with organized crime is crumbling and there are so many new players on the board. The height of the Teamster power has passed, but he doesn't know that. This is his life and he is living it. I bet if he regained his position, it could have been strong once again. But he has to make choices, and one of those is to go back to Roots, to Detroit. He has to pal up with Detroit street bosses, the Jackaloni brothers, Anthony or Tony Jack, and Vito or Billy Jack. And they were often referred to as the junkyard dogs, and somehow I am still shocked they're not called Lee and Roy. (laughs) At the time, the FBI considered the Detroit crime family is one of the strongest and most difficult to prosecute in the country. Mm. Detroit is where Hoffa began, though. The Jackaloni brothers had been longtime contacts of Hoffa, and the Detroit family had deep roots. Mm. The founding fathers are Joe Uno Zeppeli and Black Bill Taco. What a name. No, Black Bill Toco. Black Bill Toco. I was like, I was just saying a taco. That doesn't sound right. Yeah, I was like T-O-C-C-O, but I like I knew that... 
how to pronounce it. But then when I said taco, I was like, that's wrong. <laughs> it's Togo. <laughs> but then the double C, I'm like, that threw me off. <laughs> it's one of the original families and part of the commission. Here's where Tony Pro, or Anthony Provenzano, from earlier, re-enters the chat. The organized crime factions knew Hoffa could be lured out by Tony Pro. And Hoffa knew he needed to make peace with Tony Pro to win the 1976 Teamster presidential election. Remember that bitter fallout in prison? Prior to that, again, he put Provenzano in power, and they had allegedly been friends. But prior to that, I already said. But what do we know about the Detroit family? It's insular. I hate that word. It's insular. 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 I don't know how to say it. Anyone not born into it isn't in it. And that's true for many families. And the Giacalone brothers? It was their time to shine for loyalty. What's a perfect way to lure Jimmy Hoffa to Detroit other than under the guise of reconciliation with his old pal Tony Pro? which he left to his other pals, the Jackalonies, to set up. Mm. Does the plot chicken? I believe it does. (laughs) Provenzano's first cousin? Oh, you would be correct in saying Tony Jackaloni's wife? Whoa. Oh, yes. Hoffa is very cautious about who he is seen with, especially when he's out in public. This is the summer of 1975. Also... They were trying to alleviate those fears of the target on his back, though it was there. It's 100% there. Right, right. They arrange a meeting at the Moccas Red Fox at 2 p.m. on July 30th, 1975. And Hoffa agrees. He's told that not only will Tony Giacalone be there, but a man named Lenny Schultz would help broker the deal with Provenzano. So he was convinced Provenzano would be coming to Detroit. So Hoppe leaves his house at 12.30 p.m., and he stops in Pontiac at a limo service ran by Louis Linto, a friend and former Teamster. Linto had the moniker The Pope, and when he (laughs) arrives at this limo service, The Pope isn't there, okay? He has to leave a message, and he goes to attend the meeting alone, which I don't know if I would have done that. Yeah, that seems a little... How dare the Pope stand him up? <laughs> so he arrives at the Marcus Red Fox between 1.45 and 2 p.m. Very punctual. After waiting at the restaurant for roughly half an hour, which is far more gracious than I ever would be, <laughs> he's rightfully ticked off. He goes across the street to the hardware store. And remember, 1975, can't pick up the cell phone. He makes two calls there. The first call was to the Pope, Louis Lento the limo service he had chartered to attend with him and he told him about being angry that he was stood up and he was outy. the second call was to his wife hoffa is seen walking towards his car in the parking lot around 2 45 p.m a mercury marquee by witness testimony occupied by three men two in front one in back rolls up hoffa was seen getting into the car and the car drove away on telegraph road never to be seen again and then tune in next week as we discuss the next part of the story. Ooh, that's a great cliffhanger. Yeah, I just dropped you right there. <laughs> I mean, we're already pretty, like, this is long. And I was like, you know. This is The Irishman, you know. This is, the Irishman is a long movie. <laughs> except I think I took up less time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm giving you time for a bathroom break. But 
<laughs> that is the short version of the life and times of Jimmy Hoffa. My goodness. There's more shit he did. This is gonna be like this is fascinating. I think I think this will give people a new appreciation for who Jimmy Hoffa was, even if they don't like the guy. I think they should appreciate a little bit more of like what he really represented. Oh yeah, like I don't like Thomas Edison, but thank you for the light bulb. <laughs> I don't like Charles Dickens, but thank you for Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> you see where I'm going? His with real this? claim to fame. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> like Gonzo as Charles Dickens affected me today. <laughs> that is a goal of mine is to be as good of a storyteller as Gonzo as Charles Dickens. <laughs> but yeah, so I feel like we have I'm not trying to tell you how to feel about Jimmy Hoffa, but I wanted to recontextualize who he was along the road that got him to where he was mm. at the end. So now we know who is Jimmy Hoffa. He's a very different person than what was sold to me. Very different. Very different. I did not expect this when I went into the research. I did not expect to find someone that I was shocked to agree with. Right. Right. I expected someone who was like did all these horrible things. Right. He's kind of sold in most popular media as like a, just a, a very smart criminal. It's pretty much like that's like the most glamorous they usually present him as. Like he was a smart criminal. Like he seemed he's usually painted as fairly facetious that like he wasn't really about the working man. He just wanted to get rich. And this seems to prove otherwise. But the other thing is, is um, I don't think he ever made his truck drivers pee in bottles. Yeah, no, no, certainly never left them out in the cold. And he certainly wouldn't have been happy with uh, Neil Gorsuch basically saying, hey, if your truck company tries to kill you, that's that's just on you for taking that shitty job. Yeah, he was saying don't take the shitty jobs. Right. And don't let them pay you shit wages. So looking at it from 2022 eyes, I'd rather have him. <laughs> <laughs> so next week, we are going to talk about... Where did he go? What happened down Telegraph Road? So we hope to see you next week. Thank you for surviving this long with us. This has been an episode of Let's Talk About the Facts. And once again, I am Elizabeth Fury. And I'm Happy Robinson. And next week will be part two. Goodbye. (laughs) Okay. I mean, we have to razz it at the beginning anyway. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Church's Chicken, but... I don't think I've ever actually been to Church's Chicken, but I've been to Dave's Hot Chicken. Oh. And Dave's Hot Chicken is the best hot chicken I've ever had. Dave's Hot Chicken is really good. Have you ever had Louisiana fried chicken over there in the South Bay? Are you joking? Look at me. Yeah. It's good. It's I, good. It's good. But Dave's... Dave's, the sauce. Oh, okay, yeah. We're done. We're done. We're not being paid by Dave's chicken, by the way. We're just talking about it. We're just talking about if you're in LA and you want chicken, Dave's Dave's, hot chicken. And they're open late. Oh, man. They deliver to my apartment. (laughs) Oh, dear God. And, like. (laughs) My dog is being spicy. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) The spice is real. The spice is fresh. The spice must flow. Baby!
Was Hoffa actually involved in the assassination of Jed? If blah blah blah, was half? <laughs> 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 <laughs>